yesterday at our uh, team rep meeting, I asked the group to, we're talking about technology and its use in the church, and I asked the group to identify sort of the pros and cons of, of technology. And um, one of the cons that we discussed was that as you become dependent on the conveniences of technology, uh, and then suddenly they s it stops working, <laughs> um, that's, uh, it sort of undermines you. That's the kind of morning we're having in the background. Uh, I hope it hasn't affected you too much this morning, but technology is kind of rebelling at the moment, and uh, we'll try to get that under control. Uh, I have shared with you before that I, I am a bit of a news junkie. Um, I will tell you that in recent months, I have cut out about, I would say, two-thirds of the news that I had been watching. Um, and uh, part of me is a little anxious about that, like, well, I, I don't like not knowing what's going on in the world around me, but I sort of came to a conclusion uh, a few months ago that consuming a lot of media is not necessarily the same thing as knowing what's going on. As a matter of fact, uh, you can consume a lot of media today and know less about what's going on than what is really going on because there's so much misinformation. There's so much bias. There's so much narrative. And knowing what the truth is is uh, something of a challenge. And that is a little bit crazy-making. And I think I feel like I know something about uh, crazy. I, when I was in grad school, was finishing up grad school in Seattle. I was at Seattle Pacific University, and I was getting a degree in counseling and family therapy. And I was looking for part-time work uh, to supplement our income, and I found a job at what was basically a locked psychiatric unit. So this is the place in Seattle, if you were picked up on the street, you know, barking at cars or something, uh, this is the place that they would take you. It was a locked psychiatric unit. Have you ever heard of a 72-hour hold? That's, that's where all those folks went. Uh, so I got this job working on that unit, and you would think having all of this training in counseling and family therapy would make you a prime candidate for that job. But when I was interviewing, the guy who was interviewing me, he said, well, you know, I think we're going to take a chance on you, but the reality is we haven't had a very good experience with counselors and therapists coming into this environment. It's really not that great of a preparation because uh, the stuff that you deal with is not really a lot of, there's not a lot of talk therapy going on. All right? We're not, we're not helping people work through issues. We're bringing them down from a miserable episode. Most of the people who would come into the unit had what we call dual diagnosis. And usually what that means is they've got some kind of mental health disorder at work, and usually the other diagnosis is some kind of addiction. So they're coming in on pills or they're drunk out of their mind. And so what I find myself doing in this job is not helping people work through their issues in a nice conversation. What I find myself doing is taking intakes with people who are in a catatonic state because the law requires that you do the intake even if the person comes in 
uh, and is so drunk out of their mind, they don't even know who's talking to them, much less are they capable of answering any of your questions. And so I have to stand there like an idiot asking all these questions and then writing down non-responsive. The reality is the unit was primarily staffed by what you could only really refer to, not as clinicians, but as adrenaline junkies. They were people who liked the excitement of never knowing what was going to happen next. And you can imagine on a locked psychiatric unit, you never know what's going to happen next. I remember one day they brought me in to man the phones, which is a really bad idea. I worked at it all day and never did figure out their phone system. I'm sure nobody got their calls that day. But I'm sitting in the front office on this, this phone thing, trying, trying to keep up. And there are workers on the floor above us. And they're doing some, just some kind of construction. They're remodeling the floor above us. And they keep making all this dust. And the dust keeps setting off the fire alarms. And every time the fire alarms go off, all of the locked doors on the unit automatically unlock. And so every time a fire alarm would go off, the entire staff would have to jump up from whatever they were doing and run to the doors and guard the doors until, until everything locked back down again. That was the kind of adrenaline junkie high that these people loved. And as a sort of a, uh, uh, you know, an introverted uh, therapeutic type, I was not doing that great <laughs> uh, in this setting. So you have all this, uh, this, uh, this rush of adrenaline and these people who are enjoying the, the, the excitement, the unknown of it. And what I'm experiencing is something quite different. I'm experiencing a high level of stress. And what I'm observing is terrible sadness and helplessness. It is a miserable place filled with miserable people for whom we don't have that much hope of their recovery. Most of the uh, residents at any given time on that psych unit have been there multiple times before. As they come into the unit, the psychiatrist uh, uh, meets with them, prescribes medication for them, get them stabilized, put them back out on the street where they immediately sell or stop taking their medication. And a few days later or a few weeks later, they're right back. think about those times a lot. I learned a lot while I was working on that unit. In that same neighborhood, that same neighborhood of Seattle, Capitol Hill in Seattle last year, there was an autonomous zone set up. I watched that with great interest on the news. They set up this autonomous zone. And thinking about my old workplace and thinking the, the, the prophecy has been fulfilled. The lunatics have taken over the asylum. We live in a crazy world. Insanity really is a matter of degrees. The people inside the unit believe such wild things that we're ready to dismiss them. People outside the unit taking over the streets and blaming government for all their problems, 
they're probably just as insane. It's all a matter of degrees. Insanity, I would argue, in our world today, is not only becoming more common, it's actually, in a way, becoming kind of popular. It is the, the thing that we would prefer. We would prefer to be a little bit nuts because dealing with reality is just not all that it's cracked up to be. But that's kind of a problem because sanity, if, if we really want to just boil it down to the basics, sanity is the ability to distinguish between delusion and reality. Now, there's a lot of factors that go into determining our relative mental health status. But if we just want to define this in the most basic of terms, being sane is the ability to see what's real, what's not real, and to distinguish between the two. So if you come in to the unit saying that you are Teddy Roosevelt, and we objectively know that you are not Teddy Roosevelt, then we say that person uh, does not have a firm grasp on reality. If you're wearing a tinfoil hat to keep the aliens from reading your thoughts, you say that person doesn't have a firm grasp on reality. But hear me on this. Using this same definition, the inability to distinguish between reality and delusion, none of us are entirely sane. None of us get this right 100% of the time. Sometimes the lies are so believable. Sometimes the delusions are so believable that we get sucked up into them. We get caught up. And it's kind of like that space that you're in, you know, when you're just waking up in the morning and you have that really vivid dream. And as you're lying there between, between the dream and between consciousness, you're not sure what's real or where you are. Imagine if you were there all the time. Sometimes, sometimes uh, we believe things that are not real, that are not true, because of uh, maybe it's sometimes it comes from us. Sometimes we've deluded ourselves. Sometimes it's about influences that come from outside of us, people that are telling us lies that they really want us to believe. And sometimes we're just trading the reality that we don't like for the delusion that we prefer. But here's, here's some reality that we've got to face. Objective truth is the foundation of mental health. So I have at times in my past struggled with depression. The key descriptor for depression, the key factor in depression is this overwhelming feeling of hopelessness. That hopelessness is not reality. In order to get better, in order to be mentally healthy, I have to be able to make a distinction between what I feel to be reality and what is reality. That truth is the core, that absolute truth, that absolute reality is the core of uh, our ability to help people 
move through these things. If I have mania, I believe that I'm invincible. If I have schizophrenia, I see hallucinations or I hear voices in my head. None of those things are real. And mental health, our, our definition of mental health is really dependent on our having that objective truth that we can distinguish between what's real and what's not real. As a counselor, as someone trained as a counselor, I, I want to tell you this morning that that objective reality is critical to healing. And not just in these sort of big uh, pathological diagnoses, but in, in our own emotional state, as individuals and as couples and as families, if we can't deal with the reality of our situation, or if we're playing games with that reality, or we're pretending that things aren't what they are, or we're putting a brave face on what's really happening behind the scenes, the reality is by not facing the reality, we're probably not getting any better and we're likely getting worse. That objective truth is key to our making progress. And in the same way, just like objective truth is the foundation of mental health, absolute truth is the foundation of spiritual health. In other words, um, there are profound and eternal truths to be, to be had, to be found. And if we could find those eternal truths and we believe in them and we build a life on them, good things are going to result. The, the reverse of that is also true. If we believe in delusions and build our life on delusions, bad things will happen. So some of the, some of the eternal truths that we've talked about here recently, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. If you know that and believe that and build your life on this premise that you are not random, but that you are created by God with purpose and intent, good things are going to result. We are deeply loved, but also we are irreversibly broken. And so we need to be fiercely redeemed. These are eternal truths, and by building a life on these eternal truths, we end up at a place that is both mentally and spiritually healthier. For the way that Scripture puts it in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In other words, knowing God and knowing His truth, knowing the eternal truth that comes from Him, this is where you start to figure it all out. But at the same time, we recognize that the truth can be profoundly difficult to know. And I mean that in more than one sense. First off, there's our perception of the truth. So that if the truth is out there, our perception of it is not always clear. Sometimes it's uh, cloudy at best. Our perception of the truth can be influenced by a lot of different things, not the least of which is my own thoughts and emotions. They get in the way of me having a clear understanding of what that truth is. They distort it. 
Kind of like when you're a child uh, and you've been sent to bed and you're, you're laying there in the dark room and you're looking into the closet and you can see your clothes hanging there and the sleeves on your shirts look like something with arms and you're just convinced that there's a monster in the closet. Our fears distort our perception of reality. But then we also have to contend with the opposite possibility. Especially right now, when I do watch the news, start to think that yesterday's paranoia is today's sensibility. Things that, that if you'd told me were going to happen 10 years ago, I would have said you were a scaremonger, <laughs> that you were paranoid, that you were a conspiracy theorist, are happening right now, and they're, they're our reality. You see how difficult it is to sort of figure out what reality is under all circumstances? There are interpersonal and cultural forces in our world right now, as there always have been really, that are invested in deception. They are invested in us believing lies. The media has a bias in what it chooses to present to us and what it chooses to withhold from us. Governments and politicians produce propaganda to make sure that we believe things that will bring us into compliance with their policies. The culture embraces certain ideals, certain morals, and then promotes a narrative that reinforces those ideals and morals. And advertisers. Advertisers are completely dependent on creating a desire within us for things that we probably don't need. And so they are constantly in the business of either telling us that we are somehow deficient without their product or that we will be more happy and successful with their product. Sometimes it's us. Sometimes we're just personally invested in being deceived. There are things that I don't want to know and I don't want to deal with. After all, if you think about this, now we're all here this morning because we have faith and hope in Christ, but if you didn't have that faith and you didn't have that hope, this world would be a pretty devastating place. You take away that faith, that hope that we have in Christ, that hope that there is something more to this life and there's something more beyond this life, and uh, maybe the depressives had it right all along. Maybe it is just completely hopeless. That's a pretty devastating place to be, and we don't like being there. And so sometimes, sometimes we choose a delusion we essentially embrace a little bit of insanity to stave off complete madness. But Jesus says something different. Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says this, starting in verse 3, he says, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all God's people, the faith and love that springs from the hope stored up for you in heaven 
and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. Paul essentially says here that there's a test of what's true. And the test is it will bear good fruit. This gospel is meant to make a difference in your life. Not just when you die. It's meant to make a difference in your life right now because it is designed to bring us in alignment with the truth of God. It is designed to restore us to the reality of his making. The deeper we grow into this truth, the more fruit it will bear in our life. Kind of like the parable of the, the wise and the foolish builder. The one who builds on the solid rock of truth will build a house that will stand. And the one who builds on sand is going to collapse as soon as adversity comes. The deeper we build into this truth, the firmer our foundation the better an end product we will create with this life. But here's another difficult truth. That is that in every generation, in every age, the truth itself has its enemies. The truth is opposed by someone or something at all times. Now, we can measure the fruitlessness of those who reject truth and that, that will tell us something about them as well. But in this age, in our time, there is an enemy of truth that we have described in rather inane terms. We call it postmodernism. And postmodernism, postmodernism proposes that all truth is relative, that, that nothing is absolute, that it's all a matter of perception. Now, I want you to think for a minute about what that means for us spiritually. If all truth is simply a matter of perception, if there's nothing absolute, what we're saying then is that there's really not that much difference between building on the rock and building on the sand because in reality it's all sand. There is no truth. There is nothing stable. There's nothing you can rely on. There's nothing eternal. There's nothing absolute. What is the baseline? In a world without truth, what is the baseline for assessing mental health? There's no such thing as depression or anxiety or mania or hallucinations or dysphoria because who are we to say that people's experience is not their truth? In essence, we find ourselves looking at the world around us today and wondering, is nothing sacred? And the world right now is answering us, no. Nothing is sacred. There is nothing absolute. There is nothing from God. But in a world where nothing is sacred, 
sanity is a practical impossibility. There's nothing upon which to base it. There's nothing to pursue. If you're depressed and you feel the world is hopeless, then that's your reality. Your voices in your head telling you to hurt yourself, that's, that's your reality. We have no business contesting any of that. Insanity in our world has become fashionable. Well, the truth has become something quaint. It was old-fashioned and silly and ridiculous and overly traditional. Jesus says you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. And he says what use would these things be if they lost their distinctiveness? What, what use would they be? What, if you're salt and you're not salty, what use is that? If you're light, but we hide your light under a bushel, what, what use is that? It's pointless. What use is reality if it has no distinctive quality? There is a sacred truth. There's a sacred truth that, that there was a creation, that your life has purpose, that you have an identity, that your life itself is sacred, that it is something God cherishes. And that by embracing these truths, your life becomes useful to God and fruitful. In other words, if we are consistent with holiness, if we are consistent with God's righteousness, the more consistent we are with God, the more freedom we experience, the more contentment we experience, the more joy and the more love we know. Many people in our world today, in pursuit of their favorite delusions, have made themselves enemies of the truth. And what fruit has that borne? Is our world a happier place? Is it a more peaceful place? Haven't we seen in the name of unity more division in our world? Haven't we seen... In the name of tolerance, more contempt? Haven't we seen in the name of love and racial unity more hatred than we have known in many decades? Haven't we seen more violence in the pursuit of peace? Where is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, oh, that's right. Those things can only come from their eternal source. Paul goes on in Colossians 1, starting verse 9, he says, For this reason, since that day that we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience 
and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Christ rescues us from the dominion of darkness. He rescues us from the dominion of darkness. And when we think about that terminology, we think about where the darkness is, we imagine ourselves to be someplace far from it. Here's the truth. Uh, The dominion of darkness, which Jesus rescues us from, which Paul talks about in this passage, is a place that we have otherwise known as home. This world, this earth, is a dominion of darkness. Now, not everyone seeks a rescue from it. Not everybody's looking to get out. Sometimes we're too familiar with the darkness. We'd actually choose it over the light. Sometimes we're afraid to have hope. Sometimes we fail to make the connection between the brokenness that we have known, the brokenness that we've experienced in this life, and the broken idols that we worship that have brought us to that point. We have made peace with the world. Made peace with the world because in our culture in particular, we have had this opportunity to sort of shine the light of the gospel into the darkness. And so sometimes there's just enough light out there in the world that we convince ourselves, oh, we're all in the same boat. We're all in this game together. That light is emanating from Christ, but it's only reaching into the darkness. It is overcoming the darkness, but it's not replacing it, not yet. There's another hard reality that we have to deal with, and that is that this world is not presently part of the kingdom of Christ. Yes, it will be. There will be a day when every knee will bow. There will be a day when no one can deny him any further, any longer. But right now, this world is a dominion of darkness. We're in it. We can't be of it. We can't be from it. We can't be a part of it. As the darkness grows, as the darkness descends on the world around us, this is the uncomfortable, difficult reality that we have to face. But the world we wander is not presently part of the kingdom. Jesus says, but the world where evil flourishes, love grows cold. Simple as that. Growing up in what we have presumed to be a Christian nation, a Christian society, we have felt comfortable pretending that there is no distinction between this dominion of darkness and the kingdom of light. 
getting a lot harder right now to pretend that way. The world offers its dark understanding of things. The world offers delusions masked as reality. And the church sometimes falls into the trap of just offering a quick fix. Pretty bad, but we'll get you out of here when you die. It'll be all right. What Jesus offers is something remarkably different. Jesus offers his life to bring us into his kingdom, a kingdom of light. To grow, Paul says, to grow in knowledge and wisdom and understanding. To live a worthy life, a life that's fruitful and pleasing to God. To grow in strength and in power and endurance and forgiveness. To know joy and gratitude and fellowship and inheritance. If you have longed to live a life in love and yet still find yourself lost and afraid, you need to reconnect with this truth. Christ rescues from darkness. As the world around us chooses darkness over light, we have to reconnect with this core message, this core truth, this basic reality. The church is not here to offer the world fantasies to make them feel better about how broken everything is. The church is here to offer the reality of Jesus Christ to oppose the delusions and brokenness of the darkness. There is hope in Jesus Christ. We must live in that hope, and we must share that hope. This is our spiritual reality check. If we can face the reality of who God is, if we can face the reality of who Jesus Christ is, it will, in fact, transform our existence. It will, in fact, bear fruit in our lives that we desperately want to bear. It's not merely a matter of at the end of this journey... I get my get-out-of-jail-free card, and I go off to heaven and live with Jesus on the clouds. It is a kingdom into which we have already been invited to enter. And by growing closer to Christ, growing closer to God, our life becomes exponentially better. It becomes transformed not in the way that the world thinks is better or the world thinks is, is transformed, but in a way that brings contentment and joy and faithfulness, in a way that builds individuals, that builds couples, that builds families, that builds communities, that builds churches. This is the hope that we're called to. This is the hope in which we must believe. This is the hope of the sacred cure.